Father, we are grateful for your goodness to us, for your mercy in so many ways. Thank you, Father, that it is cooler in here than it is outside, and yet we wish it were still a little bit cooler. Father, we ask that you would enable us to devote our attention to your word for the next couple of hours. Please teach us by your spirit. Please prepare us to serve you in your church and to represent you in the world more effectively. We ask this for your glory and for the glory of your Son. Amen. Okay. We're going to transition now to the study of ecclesiology, which is the study of the doctrine of the church. It's called ecclesiology because the Greek word for church is ekklesia. And we'll talk a little bit about that word in a moment. We will be spending either the next two, either this night and next week, or more likely tonight and the next two weeks on the study of ecclesiology. And I suspect, although I'll probably turn out to be wrong, that this will be one of the least controversial or uh, difficult topics that we'll be covering in CBCBI, but every time I think that, I turn out to be wrong, okay? All right, we're going to talk about the nature, the origin, and the identification of the church, the leaders and the government, sometimes called the polity of the church, the ordinances and sacraments of the church, the purposes and ministries of the church, and then we'll briefly discuss some special issues regarding the church. That's the overview of what we're going to cover in our study of ecclesiology. Now, when we're talking about the nature, origin, and identification of the church, we're asking what is the church, when did the church start, and where is the church? Where is it located? And that's an interesting question. Let's start with the first question. What is the church? Anybody want to venture a guess? What would you say if I asked you what the church is? Just quickly. I am the church. Okay, you're a believer. An assembly of believers. Okay. It's interesting that Belen says that she is the church, and I agree with her. And John says we are the church. Okay, both of those things are true. And you can kind of see that from the term in the New Testament. The word ecclesia comes from the preposition ek, which means from or out of, and the verb kaleo, which means to call. Kaleo and call, it's actually a cognate. Call, kaleo, it almost sounds like English. The term is a non-technical term, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. But it basically means the called out people. The church is a people called out of somewhere to be somewhere. They are summoned, if you will. Okay? Now, this term appears in the Gospels only three times, which is very interesting. We tend to think of the Gospels as the first part of the New Testament 
but you could argue that the, go the Gospels are actually the last part of the Old Testament. Because it's only when we get to the end of the Gospels that the event happens that changes everything, which is Christ going to the cross. Okay? And that's probably why we only see that word three times in the Gospels. Now, it appears 111 times elsewhere in the New Testament, and by far, most of those are in the epistles, and it appears a few times in the book of Revelation. Now, when I say this word is not a technical word, what I mean is this. It does not mean just one specific thing. In the book of Acts, in chapter 738, it's used to refer to Israel. In Acts chapter 19, verse 32, it's used to describe an angry mob that certainly were not believers. Okay? In, um, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, it's used to describe Old Testament Jews who weren't Christians. And in Matthew 18, 17, it's used to describe a synagogue. Now, if we were to go to the Septuagint, which I think you know is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you would see the word ekklesia there many times. Now, if someone were to stand up and say, the word ekklesia appears in the Septuagint, that means the church existed in the Old Testament. Would that be a valid argument? Okay, Bob's giving it a thumbs down. Why? Okay, first of all, it's not the original language. Very good point. Okay? The fact that somebody used that word to translate Hebrew does not mean that it's a technical term meaning the same thing that it usually means in the New Testament. Okay? Now, given that the word has such a broad range of uses, it's not surprising that it was used in the Old Testament because there were many times when groups of people gathered. Okay? So, as we approach the New Testament discussion of this subject, we need to be careful not to assume that the usage of that word necessarily means that the church, as in the body of Christ, is being discussed everywhere where that word appears. Are you with me? Okay. Now, this is a definition that's basically mine. I think you'll all be com comfortable with it because it's not controversial. What is the local church? It's a specific group of believers who meet regularly as an assembly or a congregation in order to fulfill the roles of Christ's body. Okay? Now, the reason I stuck on the end of it, in order to fulfill the roles of Christ's body, is that I have a men's Bible study I attend every week, and I wouldn't call that a church. The reason I wouldn't call it a church is that we have very limited purposes. But what we as a group do tonight and the rest of the week and on Sunday, ideally, at least, should be aimed at what? Fulfilling the roles of Christ's body that are laid out in Scripture. Okay? That's why I put that in the definition. Now, there's another term that theologians like to use, and I think it's a useful term. It's called the universal church. Now, there are some people who are very uncomfortable with this term, and I frankly don't understand why. The universal church 
is used to describe the body of all Christians who have been joined to Christ. I know that's redundant, okay? All people who have been joined to Christ through the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, I said Christians, meaning people who have put their faith in Christ. Okay? Now, this would include people all over the world we have never met who are part of the body of Christ just as we are. It would also include people who are no longer on earth anymore and people who aren't here yet but will be. Okay? Now, if we were to look at Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians 1.18, you're familiar with those passages. They speak as Christ being the head of the church. Okay? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in that passage talking about the rapture, it says the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay? The dead in Christ are people who lived before us, who were joined to Christ by the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit because they put their trust in him just as we did. Okay? They are part of the universal church. If you have loved ones who have already departed, they are part of the universal church. Now Matthew 16, verse 18, says that Christ came to build the church. Remember he said, I will build my church. That's one of the only really two times that the church is spoken of in the Gospels. And in Ephesians 5.25, it says he gave himself for the church. Remember that passage where he's talking about husbands, how we should love our wives? Bob. for the tape. Should we understand the uses of the word ecclesia, church, in Matthew 16 and 18 in the same way that we understand the discussion of the church, say, in the book of Ephesians? Um, I, would, I guess what I would say to you is yes and no. Okay? When he says, I will build my church, I do think he is looking to the future and speaking of the body that will be called out and it will begin at Pentecost. In Matthew 18, when he's talking about discipline, and he says, if someone sins against you, talk to him, and if he won't listen to you, tell it to the ecclesia. I think in context he was speaking of the synagogue. But I think that what he said there is applicable to the church because it kind of steps into a similar role as what the synagogue carried back then. What meaning was that uh, in the first, in the first usage? When he says, I will build my ecclesia. Why did he say that? Well, I think it was just as confusing to them as when Jesus said to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. I think what happened in that case was that Peter learned what that meant as he went through the events that unfolded in the book of Acts. And if you look what happens in the book of Acts, Peter is present when the Holy Spirit is visibly given at Pentecost to the Jews. 
when the Holy Spirit is visibly given to the Samaritans and when the Holy Spirit is visibly given to the Gentiles. And I think that that was his role of having the keys to the kingdom, if you will. He was God's appointed person to sort of preside over the entrance of each one of those groups into the body of Christ. But did he understand what that meant when he made his great confession in Matthew 16? Probably not. Did he understand what Jesus said when he meant when he said what Jesus meant when he said I will build my church? Probably not. But I think history shows us that that's probably what Jesus was talking about. But your question is ideal. It has to be asked and you've probably saved us a little work. Okay. Let's go on. Back to the universal church, although it is never assembled in a single place or time, it is a real body under Christ with a real spiritual unity. And part of that is due to the fact that dead Christians aren't dead, are they? I mean, they're physically dead, but they're alive, they're in the presence of Christ, they are at least worshiping him. I don't know what else they do up there, you know. Do they pray for us? I don't know. Do they see us? I don't know. But they're there. And at the rapture, the universal church, which has been spread out over time and over various locations, will all of a sudden come together, won't we? And we will accompany Christ in our resurrected bodies back to the Father's house. And that will not only be a reunion with Christ, but it'll be a reunion, well, it'll be a union, the first gathering, if you will, of the entire universal church in one place. And that's kind of a, a neat prospect. Another question. Okay. Concerning that, um, in that sense that we're using the word church, Mm-hmm. Okay, nobody, we're, we're using it, as I understand it, in the sense only of those people who were saved by explicit faith in Christ and that body essentially began at Pentecost. I do not think that the universal church, for example, includes Old Testament saints who never heard of Jesus. So they won't be raptured. They won't be, no, they won't be raptured. And when we get to it, please, to, in eschatology, we'll talk about this. Yeah. Yes. It's a good question. And, and we'll address some of that tonight. Okay? Now, back to Belen's observation. Is there any such thing as a lone Christian? Okay? And you've heard, we went over this in our hermeneutics course, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Does that mean that two people make a church? That's not what that passage is about at all, is it? It's about church discipline. And by the way, would if it were about the church, would it mean that one person is not part of the body of Christ? No, it doesn't. I think the answer to this question is that there is such a thing as a lone Christian, and the church is present when one person, when one believer is present. However, it's abnormal, unhealthy, and foolish for any believer to choose 
not to fellowship and participate in a local assembly. Okay? We are called to do so. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves as is the habit of some, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Okay? In order to be a fruitful believer, you've got to participate in the body. I know, Belen, you weren't suggesting that one should ever do that. Um, the Roman Catholic Church would say, however, that there is no such thing as a lone Christian. The Roman Catholic Church would say that if you lived on a desert island and you happened to be reading your Bible and you read the Gospel and you believed it, you're still unsaved because you are not joined to Mother Church. And they also believe that if Mother Church kicks you out, you are severed from the body and severed from the life of Christ. And both of those things are certainly not true. Okay? All right, second question. When did the church start? Okay, well, we already talked through the first point. Jesus predicted that he would build his church in Matthew 16, 18. Robert? Can I jump back just yeah, sure. real quick? Yes. On the question of, of Catholic belief, Mm. I was under the impression, which may have been false, that well, and Catholic I'm belief about membership in the body of Christ had moderated. Well, it may, it may have. Okay, it may have. They would say, and 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 I, and I don't I don't really mean to speak authoritatively for the Catholic Church, but historically, okay, the, yeah. the the whole idea of excommunication has been based on the idea that if you are severed from the church, you're severed from Christ. Now it's true. In recent years, the Roman Catholic Church has moderated on a whole lot of things. And they've even begun to make noises to suggest that there is salvation in other religions. Um, so, you know, it's 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 yeah, it's 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 hard to be sure. It's hard to be sure. Okay. Now, the very fact that Jesus said, "I will build my church," would seem to suggest that it didn't exist at that time. Although that's not that's not absolutely necessary. Now, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, very important passage. Paul speaks of the mystery of the church. Let's start with verse 4. He says, by which, this is Ephesians 3, verse 4, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of man, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, namely that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Now this statement suggests very strongly that the church did not exist in the Old Testament partly because the word mystery refers to something that was not revealed up until a certain point in time, and partly because of the statement, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Holy Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Now, when you look at that verse, do you see that little word, as? That little word, as, has caused a theological battle. 
which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed. The reason that word as has caused a theological battle is that the word as can either mean but it has or it can be mean in the same way or to the same extent. You could look at that verse and say it was made known to them but not to the extent that it's been made to, known to us or you could look at it and say it was not made known to them at all but it has been made known to us. Now you can't don't stop me yet, okay? You can't answer that question from Ephesians, but you can answer it from Colossians 1.26. Now, many of you probably have noticed that Colossians and Ephesians are very similar in some ways. They're kind of sister letters. And in Colossians 1.26, Paul says, again, speaking of the church, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Now there, the comparative as is missing, and there is a contrastive but, and it makes it very clear that the church was not made known in the Old Testament, but it has been made known in the New Testament. Now, Mary, your question. Yeah, uh, in the Old Testament. In, in the Old Testament? Yes. They could become Jews, yes. Well, no, 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 no. Don't say that. A Gentile, a Gentile who came to Israel and truly wanted to become a Jew could and, and would do so. Yeah. The Jews had become very racially and religiously proud, no question. Okay. How is this different? I mean, I don't know. But how would the apostles be interpreted in other traditions? How would that differ from the law concerning Okay. Okay. Um, hang on. And I'm going to answer your. The question was how did the addition of Gentiles to the Jews through proselytization in the Old Testament differ from the forming of the church out of Jews and Gentiles? And that's, that's a great question, and I'm beginning to anticipate it up here. Okay, You're right on track. Okay, Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2. Okay, The answer is really right there. It says in Ephesians chapter 2.14... For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as, and this is the key, key phrase, to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Now, what Paul is saying here is that the church is not Jews with Gentiles added. The church is God calling Jews out of their place and calling Gentiles out of their place and joining them together 
in something new, a new man, something that's never existed before under the headship of Christ. So it's a new thing. It's not Old Testament Israel. Now, that's significant both for our understanding of our worship and practice as a body and for our understanding of God's plan for the future and what's going to happen with the nation of Israel. And in our course on eschatology, we will see that God's plans for national Israel remain intact, but we'll also see that God has special plans for those Jews and Gentiles who are called out into this new body in this present time. You know, you all know I think that I'm Jewish, but my Jewish identity does not make me special in the church. I am a Christian. I happen to be a Christian who comes from a Jewish family. You are Christians who happen to come from Gentile families. But our identity is Christian, not Jew or Gentile. And it's something new. Okay? Let's continue on. The indwelling Holy Spirit joins believers to the body. 1 Corinthians 12:13 speaks of how the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit was not given until after Christ arose. You remember that statement in John 7:39, the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Christ had not yet risen. Remember that statement? Very important statement. It helps us to see that there was a dispensational change in what God was doing between the Old Testament period and the New Testament period, and the point of change was the cross. It was not until Christ died and ascended to heaven that God chose to begin this new thing, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit, the baptizing of believers into one body, okay? John 7, uh, is it? Is it 7.39? Okay. Uh, no, I think it's 6.39. Where is it? Is it 7.39? Okay, good. Oh, I got the page wrong. Okay. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet Okay? That's very interesting. Right there in that verse, he said, it says, whom those who believe in him would receive. There was a time when there were men who believed in Christ and yet hadn't received the Holy Spirit. It lasted for a very short time. Okay? It happened in the lives of those who saw Christ on earth and believed in him, and that time ended when? at Pentecost. Okay? So the church is something new. Now, if you go to Acts chapter 1, 5, what what does Jesus say there? He says, Wait in Jerusalem for that thing which I have promised. John truly baptized in water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You see that? It hadn't happened yet. Now, I, I, don't, I would like to avoid getting into a big discussion of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and Pentecostal and charismatic ideas about that. What I'm trying to emphasize here is the baptizing work 
of the Holy Spirit that joins believers to the body. The fact that on Pentecost there was a visible manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit does not necessitate that every time a person is baptized into the body there should be such a visible manifestation. And in reality, there hardly ever is. And if you check the, even the accounts of Scripture, even the accounts of the book of Acts, those visible manifestations were very rare. And if you track it through the, the book, you'll see that it happens with Jews, Samaritans, Old Testament saints, and Gentiles. And those are the four groups that have to be taken care of, if you will, to prove that they have been made part of the body. And I think one of the reasons that God did it that way was that the Jews were very hesitant to understand this idea that Christ had come to save everybody. So God kind of slaps them in the face a few times and says, pay attention, watch, see what's going on. Okay? Now, we know in Acts chapter 2 that the events of Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit occurred and in Acts chapter 11, verse 15, there's an interesting statement that Peter makes, which is very important. He says, and he, he's, he's defending the fact that he went and preached the gospel to the Gentiles, because the rest of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are really upset about that. And he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as it had upon us at the beginning okay now I think the beginning of which he is speaking is the beginning of the church okay put all this together I think we have a very strong argument that the church began at Pentecost that it is something new that it did not exist in the Old Testament that it was not revealed in the Old Testament now let me just say very quickly and let's not get sidetracked into this if we can avoid it because our time is short. The reformed idea that the church is the new Israel or that the church has taken over the plates and promises of Israel they would often quote Matthew 21 43 as proof of that is not sound and it has serious hermeneutical and theological difficulties. Okay? Um, first of all, it won't fit this discussion. Okay? Second of all, if we accept the idea that the church has taken the place of Israel, then we have to take a lot of things that God promised in the Old Testament that could only be fulfilled literally for the nation of Israel and interpret them some other way. Turn them into spiritualized ideas or ideas that are happening in heaven when it describes things on earth and you just end up with a big mess. Okay, So I don't think you can do this soundly. And obviously, um, if one were to go in this direction, one would go into amillennial eschatology, which for other reasons I think is not sound. And we're discussing it in the other hour. Okay? Robert? Yes. Uh, <coughs> I, I'm not going on the track. I okay. just want to ask, does it make a difference for us from the purpose of what God calls us to do or how the church is supposed to be organized, whether it was... Where, where it began. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah, great. Let me repeat it for the tape. Does it make a difference for what the church should do or how we should be organized when we discuss the question of when the church began? Um, certainly if the church began in the Old Testament, okay, 
we're left with this really thorny question that nobody in Reformed theology has ever been able to answer, which is how do you decide which part of Israel's law the church should obey and which parts the church shouldn't obey? Now, now I know you're not going in that direction, okay? But going in the other direction, okay, some people who are called hyper-dispensationalists would argue that the church did not begin at Pentecost. It began with the Apostle Paul. Um, I don't think that there are serious implications of that view except that it sort of leaves unexplained what was happening in the early part of the book of Acts. Now, some hyper-dispensationalists um, have some rather odd church practices, and I, I'm just not up to date enough to, to say anything intelligent about it. But that's really, the choices are it began back in the Old Testament or it didn't begin until the ministry of Paul. Pushing it into the Old Testament is much more problematic than waiting for the ministry of Paul, but there are some problems with waiting for the ministry of Paul. And we could look into those later, but I just can't intelligently speak to that. Just a follow-up question. Follow-up question. Is, is, is with the mystery passages, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted I guess maybe you'll get to it later, but okay. I'm conflicted over things like the passages in Hebrew where it talks about the faith of the Old Testament saints being imputed to them as righteousness. Mm. And well, okay. What to the okay. Old great, great question. All right, let me repeat this the, okay. the question for the tape. The question is, when we talk about the mystery not having been revealed in the Old Testament, that leaves open uh, difficult questions of making sense of statements like in the book of Hebrews about the faith of Old Testament saints and righteousness being imputed to them. Okay. Your question is very good because it brings up something that we should say regarding the distinctions between the church and Israel and the similarities. Okay? All through time, from the very beginning, salvation has always been by grace, through faith, on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, the Old Testament saints did not know about Christ in the way that we do. Their faith was in the promises of God, and God imputed the righteousness of Christ to them, but God did it knowing that Christ would come, but they didn't know that Christ would come in the detail that we know. Now, they knew that the seed of the woman would destroy the work of Satan, etc., okay? But they were saved by grace through faith on the basis of imputed righteousness just as we are and that part is continuous all through time when we say or when, when, a, when a theologian of my color says that the church and Israel are two different groups I am saying we are all the people of God in one sense but we are not all the same people of God in every sense there are dispensational distinctions but those fundamental issues are the same for all believers of all time and, and will be forever. Okay, let's go on. Uh, when did the church start continue? Okay, um, this is just some interesting observations by James Montgomery Boyce. He said that Israel is a people called out of the world to a special relationship with God. They are a people who receive special promises from God. There are people called the faith, love, obedience, and worship of God. 
The church is a new and distinct entity characterized by all of the above. Now, the promises that we have received aren't exactly the same, okay? The rules that we have received aren't exactly the same, but we are called out to a special relationship. We are called, uh, we are given special promises, and we are called to love, faith, obedience, and worship of God. We are all the above, plus the church is a people founded on the Lord Jesus Christ in a unique way, okay? We are a temple built upon him, Okay? We are called into being by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does something that he never did before in history. He baptizes Christians into this body under the headship of Christ. And we are a body containing people of all races who become a new people in God's sight. Okay, So I think that's a helpful description of the similarities and the differences between the church and Israel. Okay? All right. No. I'm serious. No. Because I want to get through this. Let's talk about it during the break. And I'm not trying to be mean to you. Your questions are excellent. But we only have we only have six more sessions. It's okay. That's why I asked instead of just asking. Good man. Good man. Okay. Question number three. Where is the church? How do we know whether a person or a group is the church? Well... We already discussed this. Where a single believer is present, the body of Christ is present. Nonetheless, believers need each other. 1 Corinthians 12 has that long description of how the different parts of the body need the other parts of the body. We need each other's gifts. We need each other's wisdom and encouragement and rebuke and all those things. And believers should make every effort to participate in the local assembly, according to Hebrews chapter 10, as we already discussed. Now, this is an interesting one. The mere claim of a group of people to be a Christian church does not make them one. Let's suppose some group of nuts gets together and wants to defame the Christian religion. And they call themselves a church, and they hang out a shingle, and they hire a guy, and they call him a pastor, and he stands up and starts preaching all kinds of wacko stuff. If you think about it, you can probably think of one or two churches like that in our city. Okay? The fact that they call themselves a church does not make them a church. Now, it may be difficult to prove they're not, but... Lara? Um, I guess... Well, we'll get, we'll get to that. I would, I would say that it's a church that has not fully comprehended the biblical requirements for leadership, at the very least. Okay. The functions of a church characterize healthy churches, okay? Now, some of you may have heard this before. Life, worship, instruction, fellowship, and evangelism. You ever heard that before? It's a nice acronym, okay? It's, it's not perfect, but it's very helpful. Worship, instruction, fellowship, and evangelism. Now, fifth point, since apostolic succe succession... The idea that Peter was the first pope and he passed his authority as the vicar of Christ on to successive popes, since that is a false doctrine, and since churches need not be founded by apostles, a church doesn't have to demonstrate a pedigree or a historical connection with other local bodies. You know, if, if we drop a Bible from an airplane on a desert island where 100 people live and they read it and get saved, 
they can start a church and it's just as much a church as any other group of believers. They don't have to have somebody come in and say, we authorize you. It's not a franchise, you know. Um, okay, that was easy. Okay, let's talk about the leaders and government of the church. And we'll see how far we get. We're going to go until uh, 740. Who are the leaders of the church? That's awfully tiny, isn't it? Something went wrong. What are their qualifications and roles? How are they to be selected? And how long should they serve? These are some of the questions that are important when you're asking about church leadership. Well, let's look at the first question. Who are the leaders of the church? Biblically speaking, from what you know of the New Testament, what kinds of leaders of the church are there? Go ahead. Louder. Okay, Mary says elders. Okay, what else? Deacons. Overseers. Okay, pastor teachers. Okay, we've got elders, deacons, bishops, pastor, teachers. Okay, that's, that's a good listing. That's a good listing. Now, what we're going to see as we consider this question is that we have in our minds a little bit of confusion regarding offices and roles. Okay? And I believe what Scripture teaches is that there are really only two kinds of leaders of the church and those are elders which are the same as bishops or overseers and deacons and that the role of pastor is really a role and not an office okay now having said that I'm not saying that on the basis of brethren ecclesiology okay the fact that we as a brethren type church don't have a person called a pastor is not what's making me say that pastor is a role not an office and you'll see why and having said that I'm not saying that for a church to have a person called a pastor is unbiblical either you'll see why in a little while okay alright the New Testament only recognizes two classes of leaders in the church the elders bishops and the deacons. Pastor is not an office but a role. Nobody mentioned deaconess, which is kind of interesting. Um, the, the issue of the deaconess is disputed. Okay, let's talk about elders and deacons separately. And what we're going to do for the next five minutes is talk about elders. Okay? The term elder is the word presbyteros. It really means old man. And the term bishop is episkopos, like epis this is like Presbyterian and Episcopalian. You notice that? Episkopos means someone who watches over others. Okay? They refer to the same office. Now the former one speaks of the character of the person who holds that office. He's an old man, meaning he's experienced and wise. The second term, episkopos, speaks of the role of the person who holds that office. An elder or bishop is a wise old man. Now, he doesn't have to be old chronologically, but he's a wise older person whose role it is to watch over the church. 
That's what comes out of those words. Okay? Now, the requirements for elders fall into two main categories. First one is attitude, and the second is qualifications. And the qualifications relate to character and capability. Now, where this comes from is basically 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And I think, I think you're all very familiar with this material, so we're going to go through it quickly. Now, we don't often talk about the attitude, but attitude is important. According to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says, If a man desires to be an elder, he desires a good thing. Now, a person shouldn't be an elder if he doesn't want to be one. We should not twist men's arms and get them to be elders if they don't want the job. Okay? Now, the second part of a proper attitude comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, where it says that elders should serve eagerly and they should not do so for the money. And when I say that, you all go, huh? Scripture teaches that elders should be paid. It really does. And I honestly think we're doing something wrong in not paying our elders. Okay? And you can tell them I said that, and you can tell anybody I said that. And I'm saying this on the tape. Okay? Scripture teaches that elders should be paid. You know, at least compensated in some way for their gasoline, for their time, for their grief. Um, that's really what Scripture says. So an elder should have a proper attitude. And, and it's obviously both positive and negative. He should want the role and he should do it gladly. He shouldn't do it for monetary gain. He shouldn't do it because he likes to lord over people. Now, when we talk about qualifications, there are lots of them. Okay? The positive qualifications, I'm just going through what you would see if we were to work through 1 Timothy chapter 3. An elder should be blameless. He should be the husband of one wife. We'll come back to that. He should be temperate and sober-minded. He should be self-controlled. He should be gentle. He should be hospitable. He should have reverent, submissive children. We'll come back to this in a moment. He should have a good testimony with outsiders. He should be holy in his lifestyle. And he should be just and able to, dis to settle disputes justly or fairly. He should not be a man who engages in favoritism. Okay? Negative qualifications, or if you will, disqualifiers. He should not be given to drunkenness. He should not be violent. Now, some of these are flip sides of the ones we've already seen, right? He should not be greedy for money. He should not be quarrelsome. Now, this doesn't mean that a, an elder can't be someone who disputes over issues. In fact, an elder has to be someone who disputes over issues. But he should not be someone who loves to fight just for the joy of fighting. Okay? He shouldn't be covetous and he shouldn't be a novice or a new believer. Now, by the way, covetousness and greed are not the same thing. Okay? Greed is the desire to have things. Covetousness is a desire to have what others have and anger that they have it and you don't. Okay, so it goes a little bit further. Okay? 
This one's an important one down there, not a novice or a new believer. We obviously don't want elders who are new to the faith. But I would also suggest that we need to keep in mind when we're dealing with any kind of ministry position in the church that we be very careful not to put new believers in positions of authority. And I have seen churches make a mistake of taking someone who has a very dynamic conversion experience and saying, that guy's on fire, let's put him over the youth or something like that and then regret it. Okay? We need to move slowly, obviously with elders, but I think with anybody who's in a position of leadership. Okay, now this is supposed to come down one at a time, but let's go through it. There are only two capabilities that are required specifically of elders and bishops. The previous ones were character qualifications. Um, an elder should be able to teach holding fast to the faithful word from 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.9. He should know the scripture. He should be able to apply the scriptures in opposing error, in instructing in the truth, and in exhorting people to obey God's desires. An elder should also be one who rules his own house well from 1 Timothy 3.4. He must demonstrate leadership in the home as proof of leadership capability in the church. Okay? This is one that we must always take seriously. A man who doesn't have order in his home isn't likely to be able to maintain order in the church. Okay? Now, we've got just a little bit more, so let's push through. I think this is the last slide. Yes. Okay, first question. Can women be elders? The answer is very simple. No. 1 Timothy 3.2 says an elder must be a one-woman man. If you can tell me how a woman can be a one-woman man, then I will change my mind. Okay? And in the previous chapter, we are told, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, that a woman must not teach or exercise authority over a man. The role of, ex of elder is an authoritative and teaching role. Okay? You can't have a woman doing those things over the body unless your church doesn't have any men in it. But she still wouldn't be qualified on the basis of 1 Timothy 3.2. Okay, second question. What does husband of one wife mean? Now, I'm not going to try to make you agree with my position. I'm just going to tell you what the four main positions are. And we can talk about this some other time. Some people think that it means an elder can't be a bigamist or a polygamist. That almost certainly isn't what it means because in Roman society of those days, bigamy and polygamy were considered to be outrageous. Okay, now there were lots of guys sleeping around all over the place with concubines and women slaves and such, but that wasn't the same as being married to two women. Now we're told that an elder must have a good reputation with outsiders. Someone who was a polygamist or a bigamist couldn't possibly have a good reputation with outsiders. So that's not what the phrase husband of one wife means. Now some people think that it means that he has to be faithful to his present wife. And I think it certainly does mean that, but the question is, does it mean more than that? Third view is that he was never divorced, but he could be remarried or he could be a remarried widower. Now according to the second view, 
An elder could be someone who is divorced and remarried. He just be, has to be faithful to his present wife. According to the third view, he could not be divorced, but he could be remarried if his wife died. The fourth view says that an elder must be neither divorced or remarried even after being widowed. Now, some of you know that S. Lewis Johnson, when his wife died, remarried, and he stepped down from the position of elder, if I'm not mistaken, because he felt that this passage said that he would no longer be a husband of one wife. Is that right? Well, whether that is his reason, but I think, I think part of the reason was is that whether he believed that for himself was one thing, but the body... He didn't want to scandalize anybody else, right? And so I think that was probably more than anything. That he just didn't want the, the body to think that he was... Uh, he didn't want to scandalize the body, and, that, and that's very admirable, you know. I, I did not know him well, but I respect him on the basis of everything I've ever heard about him. Laura. Because he believed that? Okay. Okay. Now, the last question, and we'll break with this. Can a man with unbelieving children be an elder? You know what? The answer to this question has to be yes, unless you're going to exclude every man who has young children or unless you're going to kick a man off the elder board every time he has a new baby in the family. Because young children don't start out as believers. Okay? What does that phrase mean that he must, his children must be reverent with all submission? I believe it has to mean reverent toward the parents. Okay? It has to mean a man whose family demonstrates his ability to lead and command respect and gain obedience and submission from those who are under his authority, and he's demonstrated it as a father. Okay? Um, now, people will ask, well, what about your adult children? They move away from home. They renounce the faith. Does that disqualify a man? I wouldn't think so. I would think that the requirement only applies to children when they're in the house and we have to recognize that once they're out of the house, they're under their own authority and not required to be reverent toward their parents when they're no longer living under their authority and support. So that's basically how I would approach that. Okay? All right. Um, please do read the notes on ecclesiology between now and next week and just think about the different kinds of church polity that you have experienced because we'll be talking about that next week. You know, elder rule, congregational rule, bishop rule, hierarchical, whatever it might be. Okay, let's take a break.